Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. And we are recording for Birdman. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, or We're Right and You're Wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host, cohort, and comrade. I stole that from somebody. Co-star. Yes, there you go. Uh, Julio. Julio, how are you doing on this hot Wednesday evening? I'm, I'm beaten down. There was, there was no breaks mm-hmm. in this movie. No. Yeah. Uh, Alejandro Inuritu. Makes his Contrarians debut. I do apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. I am a whitey after all. Um, a lot of Contrarians debuts here. Uh, Michael Keaton. Has Zach Galifianakis been on the podcast before? We've talked about The Hangover. At length. Uh, at length. At the, the entire franchise. But I don't think we've actually had uh, a uh, Galifianakis vehicle. Amy Ryan. I know she's debuting here. Ed Norton. Have we had Edward? feels like we would have had a lot to say if we had already been here. So I'm going to say no. This is true. Yes. Miss Emma Stone. Have we had Emma Stone? I want to. Yeah. We might have been breaking a lot of unheralded ground here. Uh, we are here back continuing on almost uh, wrapping up our awards uh, arc here. Back with another Best Picture winner. And that is Birdman. Continuing on with our uh, bird themed movies. <laughs> we had the hawk. Now we have the man. The bat. <laughs> uh, Birdman, of course, winner of Best Picture in 2015, starring Michael Keaton and once again directed by and written by uh, Alejandro Iñárritu. Uh, won a whole hell of a lot of awards, and we'll get to that in the second portion of that. Uh, Julio, you've seen this multiple times coming in. This was my first viewing this evening. and uh, I'm sorry. I'm a bit confused. I should have handed you like a, a little bit of a cliff notes, maybe yeah. a map. But there was some sort of perverse joy that I got from just every now and then glancing at you and just seeing your your eyes. There's not, not where to look. A lot to take in. Wasn't really sure what tone it's supposed to be. Uh, not really sure if anyone else could see Birdman. You know, there's. It's fitting Ed Norton was in this because it was like Fight Club in many aspects in terms of my overall disappointment and confusion when it ended. For those of you who, for some reason, decided to jump onto the show. As we are ending our award season arc. Yes. <laughs> big Keaton fans, big Birdman fans, big Inyaritu fans. Uh, this is the Contrarians, and this is Contrarians Corner, which is where we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. This is a fresh movie, so we're going to make the case for it to be rotten. With the 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yes. Yeah, as Julio mentioned, we like to base our podcast on the little slogan, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. So on the previous episode, for example, we had Hudson Hawk, which was a very rotten uh, movie 
unrealistically so or um unnecessarily so i should say uh so we made a case for you know why it was good here we'll do the opposite we'll rage against this little movie here and see you know what all the hype was about and what uh deaf ears it fell on yeah uh that's regardless of how we feel if you want to know how we really feel second half of the podcast real talk that's where you can uh, find out our real feelings. It gives it away in the title. <laughs> uh, but being that it's 91%, a uh, shit ton of people really liked it. Also, given all the awards that it uh, raked in that awards season. Uh, yes. So, three quotes from the Run Tomatoes website. Three fresh quotes. Paul Constant from The Stranger, Seattle, Washington, says, Birdman is a glorious, ran-on sentence of a film. A bizarre but welcome transformation in the career of Alejandro Iñárritu. It definitely a run-on. It contains multitudes, contradicts itself, and apologizes for absolutely nothing. Uh, Tara Judah from Overland says, Iñárritu gives us cause to pause, but like so much great cinema that refuses to be absorbed in a single viewing, he doesn't allow, allow us the time in which to do it. I don't know that that's a good thing. Mm. I mean... You can't just say, hey, I'm sorry you didn't enjoy my movie. Watch it again, and you'll get it this time. Yeah. That's that, your fault. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's lazy filmmaking. That's lazy, just to quote the movie. <laughs> uh, and finally, Nguyen Lee from the Script Lab says, with better projects in the future, not another Need for Speed or the Studio Botch Robocop remake, I would say Birdman is the star of a Keatonessence. He's trying to make it happen with Renaissance. Keatonessence? Keatonessence? Come on, brother. <laughs> Not happening. No. I mean, it happened to Keaton's career, but... It did. It was There wasn't a, a that, Nguyen sense what, from, from this What movie. really brought Keaton back was uh, the other guys, his performance in that. This was, you know, this gets the undeserved credit. This is for the critics. The other guys is for the real people. <laughs> for the fans. For the real fans. Uh, Birdman. As I like to do from time to time, if I feel it properly encapsulates the scenario. Uh, when you're overwhelmed. That and all, basically when a movie is very confusing and we need to set the tone, I always reference the first paragraph of the Wikipedia plot. So we have here Riggin Thomas, which uh, someone calls him Reagan at one point. I was like, oh, Was God. it Ed Norton? Because that's such an asshole move to, <laughs> to pull, just call somebody by a different name. Riggin Thompson is a faded American actor who is famous for playing the superhero Birdman in a film trilogy in the 1990s. He is tormented by the mocking and critical internal voice of Birdman and frequently visualizes himself performing feats of levitation and telekinesis. Riggin is trying to gain recognition as a serious actor for writing, directing, and starring in a Broadway adaptation of Raymond Carver's short story, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Already hear some contradictions because we as the audience see him levitating so... And it's not a first-person perspective, so what the fuck am I watching? It's the first thing I see. It's the first thing you see. Is Michael Keaton in his fucking skivvies Well, the, the first thing you see, actually, it's a, it's a symbolic shot of a, of a falling star or like some sort of comet plummeting to Earth. They should have and, just shown a, like a headshot of Eddie Murphy from 1991. <laughs> well, just like something from Keaton after multiplicity, maybe. <laughs> and then, yeah, you see him. Just had to get another Andy McDowell jab in there uh, somewhere. Yeah. You just see him in his tidy whities which is already uncalled for. Mm -hmm. The movie's not setting the tone. Uh, it's not setting a pleasant tone. Uh, and is he levitating? That's the thing. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you, I, I'm okay with some ambiguity. Mm -hmm. But... This is not ambiguous. 
He's fucking just riding the air like Dalsim. <laughs> and you don't even know for sure if it's Keaton because you're his back is, is to us. And it could we, be Joaquin Phoenix for all we know. I mean, when this came out, we hadn't seen Keaton in decades. Mm-hmm. So we have no we don't know what his back looked like. I barely even recognized him when he was facing us. We're on Broadway. It took me a while to figure out where the hell we were in the sense of like it's at his apartment, but we find out it's his dressing room, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're at a theater on Broadway where he's directing, writing, you know, doing the whole shebang for this play um, with the producer being his best friend, Jake, who's played by Zach Galifianakis, who looks like any person you would see in downtown Austin on any given day. Also, It's the glasses, honestly, that do it. Well, the, the facial hair also. It's not It's not the wild Galifianakis that we're used to, the, the, the one that we enjoy. Yeah, the really the rare sighting of Galifianakis. When he's put together. Mm-hmm. And like it's happened before in, in this podcast where we've talked about movies where they make the mistake of reining in uh, an actor, a comedic actor that's known for being wild. Yeah. You know, you don't go see Will Ferrell to 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 see him play just a normal dude. Yeah. You want the crazy Will Ferrell. You want the crazy Zach Galifianakis. And here he's playing the lawyer. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine Extremely if he was playing the... Tame. Yeah, if he was Neurotic. playing the Ed Norton car- character, then you would see something that you haven't seen before, you know, his sparks with Keaton that way, and it would be playing to his strengths. But here, I mean, it, it, Bob Balaban should have been playing the, the lawyer. <laughs> First scene we see on stage, they're doing a dress rehearsal. It's not even really a full dress rehearsal. It's just kind of a, a dry run, a walkthrough, as it were. And uh, the actor they have isn't really working out. On stage, we have Michael Keaton, Naomi Watts, and what did we decide her name was? Andrea... Andrew Riceboro. Riceboro, correct. Um, for character's sake, Ed, Naomi Watts plays Leslie, Andrea plays Laura, and of course Michael Keaton plays Riggin. It's not quite working out with the actor they have on stage, and then a lighting truss, a light falls on the dude's head. Yeah, and and so we're left to wonder if if that was an accident or if Keaton used his his powers. Already confused. <laughs> Don't know what's going on because he tells. Uh, Jake, he tells Zach Galifianakis, I made that happen. Right. And so, so I mean, it's early in the movie, so there's some promise. Because mm-hmm. you're thinking, all right, is this is going to be some sort of updated take on Carrie, maybe? Where Keaton <laughs> has these powers, can't quite control them. But at some point, he's going to have a meltdown on stage when they pour pig's blood on him. And then <laughs> Ed Norton <laughs> behind the He'll crucify the Ed Norton. <laughs> yeah. But like any good friend or lawyer right away, when he says, I made that happen, he doesn't be like, okay, well, we got to cover this up. He's just like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Jake starts freaking out because this play has to be a success, and we just lost the co-star, or the second actor in the production. And Michael Keaton doesn't seem too worried about it. And this is from promise to just like the ridiculousness or things that we always harp on about other movies being uh, overly predictable and life working out just too well. He's like, it's not like another actor is just going to fall into our lap. And then Naomi Watts comes in like Kramer and it's like, do you guys know Mike Shiner? Mike Shiner, he's like the best. Oh, well, he's going to work for us now. And so, every, you know, life just works out already. The tonally inconsistent. I'm not really sure who who I'm supposed to be following here. Well, yeah. And also because the movie is doing such a poor job of establishing how things, how this world works. Mm hmm. Right? I mean, does he have superpowers? Does he not have superpowers? Are things uh, supposed to be funny? Are, are things supposed to be serious? Because, you know, you have comedy actors. Keaton, mostly known for comedies. Or Batman. 
Uh, I, I would side with Mr. Mom over Batman. Yeah. The, the, the previously shift. mentioned multiplicity. And, and you know, Galifianakis, uh, Naomi Watts, maybe not so much, but really, you know, it's saying comedy. You see the, the, the poster sells you Keaton as a superhero. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the voice in his head constantly calls him a motherfucker, which is kind of funny. So, yeah. so. Well, and the voice also, my interpretation of it was he was trying to do like an impression of Christian Bale as Batman. So I thought it was meant to be funny. <laughs> it's meta. Yeah. Uh, so, but at the same time, there's like, are we supposed to find it funny when this dude gets almost killed by a light falling on him? Uh, and then is it supposed to be funny that just when they say, well, how could we get another actor? Then another actor falls on their lap. Is that supposed to be funny or are we supposed to take it seriously? Is this really happening in real life? You know, because like you said, life doesn't like work a dream that way. sequence or what, right. what's going on? It's like when uh, in the first episode of Friends, when uh, Ross just says, I just want to be married again. And then Rachel walks in with a wedding dress. And then Chandler goes, and I want a million dollars. That's from the very first episode? Yeah. My well, that's God. the introduction of Rachel. She just fled her wedding. Uh, you know more about friends than I do. Oh, so. dude. I'll take your word for it. Uh, enter Ed Norton, Mike Shiner, who is a very well-known stage actor in the uh, universe of this film. And you want to talk about meta. We have Ed Norton playing an actor that's hard to deal with. <laughs> and a difficult, demanding, overly dramatic uh, performer. He... He is, he's where the movie gets offensive. Seems a bit too good at it. Well, yeah, he, because the movie wants to have its cake and eat it. They want him to play an actor that's a completely, a complete asshole. He's a dick, but also he's charming and he gets the girl and he knows what he's talking about. He's knowledgeable and he, he always has the last word. I mean, and his attempted a sec- his attempted sexual assaults played off for almost laughs. Yeah, exactly. It was like later on in the movie, he basically tries to rape Naomi Watts. Mm-hmm. But then, isn't it funny? He's on stage with a hard on. I mean, I'm curious what the contract negotiations were on that. What exactly he would be stuffing his draws with? Oh, that's that's old Norton. <laughs> he he used to be the Hulk, man. God bless. The contract specified nothing but the real deal. Rounding out the uh, chamber of our main actors and actresses in this film is Emma Stone, who plays the daughter of Riggin, uh, Sam Thompson, who I'm pretty sure Inuritu told her not to see the sun for at least three months prior to shooting this movie. Um, also, her middle name is Millennial. No, no shit. She, like, has a Twitter tattoo, <laughs> her Twitter handle tattooed on her shoulder. It's it's literally the the character was written as a way to get Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, what have you, to sponsor the movie. I feel like Inuritu had his teenage daughter write the character. <laughs> it's like I I don't know how the children work today. You tell me. There's there's chunks of the script that are just like blank. It's fill in <laughs> with relevant social media dialogue. Yeah, she is recently out of rehab and is recovering. Uh, they don't. Unless I missed it, they don't go into too far detail of exactly what she was on or doing. No, they they don't dwell on her past. But, you know, for as much as you can rough up Emma Stone, they roughed up Emma Stone to to fit the part. Um, She looks so young. I mean, she's, she looks younger in this than she does in Superbad. Yes, really. She looks like she's 10. Mm-hmm. Uh and part of it, of she course, she looks like a little girl trying to wear makeup. Yeah, yeah, she's she's surrounded by much older actors. But then later, the movie tries to like pair her with Norton romantically, mm. and it's just gross because <laughs> he is old enough to be like her candy. grandfather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's preview night. The 
crux of there, the timeline, I should say, of this film is we're weaving in and out of the different dress rehearsals that are open to, you know, a limited public that are coming in just to see kind of what's going on. And obviously the conclusion, the climax, the apex of the film is opening night. So, you know, they're kind of fine tuning, trying to get things right. And on the first dress rehearsal, we see uh, the Mike Shiner character, Ed Norton, lashes out one because they uh they replaced his gin with yeah water. he's a method actor and so he really wants gin in there but uh, two because he was already drunk going into it and i think he just wanted to keep the party going and was mad that they took it away from him so he kind of gets in like a pissing contest with uh riggin on stage and those that are in attendance are just kind of laughing at the uh amateur hour that's unfolding in front of them yeah i think part of the reason this movie feels unfocused is because it it really it shits on everyone and and in doing so it's just all over the place, right? Because it even it, it it makes fun or takes jabs at Hollywood, Hollywood actors, but also at theater and theater audiences, and right? Critics and critics. It, here, the audience, they even get you know Ed Norton says something like, "Well, they just paid half price to see us rehearse, so yeah. fuck them." It's like, dude, there are people that actually do that. I mean, they, they did pay. That's Treat the, them with respect. Yeah, that's the smart pro wrestlers mentality. We already got their money, brother. <laughs> Let's just walk through this. Following this, when Riggins regrouping in his dressing room, I think he's doing a, a drinking a Stella Otois, which I really appreciate. I recognize the top too. Yeah, uh, we're introduced to Amy Ryan. I, w- I was going to say she rounded out, but she's not really a constant throughout this. I think she's she has like twice, three scenes, yeah. two or three. Yeah, which and it was. Uh, I mean, even for three scenes only, it was so distracting. I. It's Holly Flax it's trying Holly, to be exactly. dramatic. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 the office. It's right there, and you just can't. You have for better or for worse. Ed Norton is is a movie actor. Keaton, he may be comedic, but he's 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 an actor. They've been in movies. Amy Ryan, you know, unless you recognize from way back in Gone Baby Gone, it's she's Holly. Yeah, she's Holly, and you just keep waiting for her to do something quirky and, and funny. Doesn't yeah. happen. I don't give a shit about her uh, Holly Flax's real life problems. I, I don't care that she's yeah, she, married to Birdman. She has a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't like. She wants uh, Emma Stone to to be closer to to Keaton. She takes baby aspirin to lower the risk of heart disease on a daily basis. <laughs> so can we do some improv? <laughs> <laughs> she plays Sylvia Thompson uh, here. That has it listed as her last name still, but I got the impression that they were separated. Or divorced. Yeah, because uh, Birdman was dicking down Laura. Because doesn't she say early on that she's pregnant? Yeah, she thinks she's pregnant. Talking about something that goes fucking nowhere. About 20 minutes later, she's like, I'm not pregnant. And it's like, Just okay, kidding. Then what was the fucking point of this? It's like they offered this actress a part, and then they realized they didn't really need her. So they had to just fill up the dead space with, with scenes that were devoted to her. Because she also makes out with, uh, with uh, Naomi Watts at some point. That goes nowhere. It does go nowhere, but I guess Andrea Riceboro had, <laughs> had just had the words story arc, and that was her contract, so she needed something in there. Anyway. She was uh, Andrea Filler Riceboro. In a more depressing narrative, we're trying to put a comedic spin on this, but this movie is essentially Michael Keaton's descent to suicide. <laughs> and this is a morbid version of the five stages of grief because here he's still optimistic and bright eyed. He's like, no, it's going to be okay. We're going to do fine. He's also delusional, though. I mean, the voices in his head are really voices in his head. It's mm-hmm. not just a, a, a cinematic uh, tool, right? It's just, it's really, 
as the movie goes on, it becomes clear that this man is not in his right mind. No. But it's also, you know, you earlier when you were doing the credits, it says written by Alejandro Iñárritu. But mm-hmm. I think that there's Keaton's therapist must have been at least like a ghostwriter in it because – He was a script consultant. Yeah. This is basically or two she, hours. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> It's two hours of Michael Keaton just doing therapy. Every time Michael Keaton, Reagan, goes on a rant about something, it's just basically, you can see the parallels. Uh, it's just Michael Keaton bitching about Marvel movies and Michael Keaton bitching about Hollywood, typecasting him as Batman, and <laughs> Michael Keaton bitching about you know not being able to, to be taken seriously in roles. It's, mm-hmm. it's the Michael Keaton bitch hour or two hours. I think we passed already, but when there's a, a press gathering just asking him about, you know, what this play is all about, there is also out of nowhere just this really like stereotypical Asian reporter that doesn't understand anything he's saying except for he says the words in like in sequence Birdman Four and the guy just like, Oh, Birdman Four? It, exactly with that accent too. It, but and yeah, and it, it's again, we're at this point. 30, maybe close to 40 minutes in, and we're still searching for our tone. We go on a stroll, because why not, with Mike and Riggin. They leave the theater, and on the street, they get into an argument about, uh, this is where Ed Norton, you know, I'm a fucking actor, and, you know, kind of goes on about, I'm more real than you ever will be, and just more, you know, um, gunpowder in the cannon that's turned around and faced at Riggin. Um, And then they go into the bar that neighbors... The theater they're in. I didn't catch the name of the theater. You get to it's clearly on Broadway because you see the majestic yeah. across the street. Well, and Naomi Watts keeps making a point of saying that this is her her Broadway debut. <laughs> Naomi Watts doing her best, Catherine Hepburn. We're <laughs> on Broadway, we are, and they see the antagonist of this movie in the bar. The critic. In case you were wondering how Michael Keaton and Alejandro Iñárritu feel about critics, the, there's a character here that's going to make it really clear for you. The live-action version of Ratatouille is what we're watching here. And the villain is Lindsay Duncan, who plays Tabitha Dickinson, who clearly has a drinking problem, because every time we see her, she's just at the bar next door drinking. And her notepad is smaller than your eyes, and God knows what she's writing in there. But she is treated like, basically, it doesn't matter what anybody else writes. Lower than dirt. Oh, yeah, that's she's treated as like the... Who's someone that everyone takes incredibly seriously? I would say Dave Meltzer for wrestling, but that means nothing to you. I mean, when he was in his time, Roger Ebert. Ebert back in the day, except that she's, I mean, Ebert could be a little mean, but not not like this woman. (laughs) Not like cartoon villain mean. Right. She literally tells uh, Keaton at some point, I'm going to ruin your career. Yeah. I'm out to destroy you. I don't even care if the play is good or not. That's just, who talks like that? That made me wonder about this of like, you know, I, we kind of know these things about the seedy underbelly of the film industry. Obviously, I know all these things about the seedy and the underbelly of the wrestling industry. It's like, man, is the, the theater industry really this gross and rough around the edges? And I don't know. I've, I haven't dabbled in the theater industry, the theater underbelly in Austin, which I'm sure it's, much more hipsterish than the one I know. But back in College Station, I, I did my time at the community theater there. And the College Station newspaper critic for theater, I mean, he was a lovely guy. <laughs> Pal around with you. He would never threaten your career or your life. It's uh, He was also sober most of the time. It is not uh, at all like the heartwarming arc in Hamlet 2 where 
Steve Coogan is obsessed with winning over the fifth grade reporter that reviews the local theater. No, this is vicious. Yeah. And, and it's really clearly with an agenda against critics. It it makes Ed Norton look good. It doesn't mean that the, the Norton character is is a good person, but they just basically put him next to her, and he becomes a hero because mm-hmm. they they basically confront each other because he's it, doing something right. He, he's, he's like fo- the art, yeah, and not just shitting on everything. Right? What are you doing? You're a critic. <laughs> he, he quotes something that those that become critics are those that cannot do or something. Yeah, yeah. and those who can't be critics have a podcast. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I'll have that uh, placed on my LinkedIn page is like my personal quote. <laughs> That's the kind of thing. If if they remade uh, Burma now, uh, it'd be a podcaster. It'd be a well, or or Emma Stone would be all about the podcasts. That's that's a good point. She'd be like, Dad, did you listen to How Did This Get Made on Birdman? <laughs> we need to get you a Marin's podcast. <laughs> oh man, I don't even know if Marin is relevant these days, as far as like. Cutting edge, what a hipster Emma Stone would. I think that's a few years ago. Yeah, I think by the I think Glow got him late. Like I was like, <laughs> like oh cool, Mark Maron, and then no one else really seemed to care. I think he peaked when he interviewed Obama, and then he just, you know, in the Trump era, nobody cares. Just rode off into the sunset. Back to the theater. We walk in. We follow the behind uh, Michael Keaton. This movie is very, you know, Inuritu is clearly a uh, fan of Darren Aronofsky as the constant shot behind the back where we follow somebody. and also he's a fan of the palma in which he, he just won't cut no the difference is when the palma does it there's like titties in the background <laughs> here you don't see anything it's just you're just behind keaton i was like you could cut this you know it, we don't need to follow him every step of the way mm-hmm. you can cut and then he's in the room well we're back into the room with emma stone and again she looks like an angsty maybe 13 year old um She's drawing on toilet paper. Is that what it is? Well, we see it again later in the. Yeah, you're she right. explains it. Uh, the point of this scene is Michael Keaton finds a joint, meaning that she's potentially off the wagon. She's relapsed. <laughs> she's relapsed. <laughs> oh my God, that gateway drug. She's back on the cush. The uh, reefer. They get into a fight, and basically Emma Stone just goes off and goes on this big millennial spiel. One, doesn't she demonize him here for not having like a Twitter or yeah. a Facebook? You don't a even Facebook. have a Facebook. Yeah. And then just talks about how he's not relevant and never will be, and nothing matters, and no one matters. And it's extremely pessimistic viewpoint. I know that by definition, I, and I believe you as well, as a, are a millennial. I think, but I mean, yes, in it, spirit, on, on though, paper, yeah. but... In spirit, I'm still always going to be a Len, steal my shun- sunshine person. So, you know, I try to always find the positives in life. And I, I'm always time displaced because I grew up in Peru. So that's it doesn't apply. Y'all had just gotten happy days when you were 14. <laughs> exactly. So. It's, it's, it's a different set of references. Uh, but she's so uptight, so so angry here. I, I mean, I think it shows in Keaton's performance. After she emasculates him for like five minutes, he goes... Man, you really need that joint. <laughs> you could use some weed and just relax. Dress rehearsal goes back about. This is what we had made allusion to a bit earlier. Mike is in bed. And they're on set with uh, Naomi Watts, and they're covered up, basically getting ready for the next scene. And he says that he believes he's getting hard, makes her grab it, and then says, let's actually fuck it be so realistic or good for art. And then attempts to, and Naomi Watts, to her credit, just 
tells him to get the fuck off. And then, like with any good situation, uh, Michael Keaton shows up with a gun and <laughs> is... <laughs> He goes on his uh, closing monologue from the play that we hear, I think, probably like three or four times throughout the movie. Yeah. And again, each one becomes more depressing following his descent into madness. Well, part of what's depressing, and I don't really want to like gloss over the sexual assault. We'll get back to that. But the, what's depressing about Keaton's performance is that it's not good. You know, it, it's Michael Keaton gets an Oscar nomination for this. I've seen him be so much better in other movies. It, Yes, he maybe has the most screen time ever in this movie, but his performance is not that great. And I think that both him and Inyaritu are confusing uh, the the fact that maybe Reagan is not supposed to be a good actor. Mm-hmm. But Keaton, Keaton, the actor, still has to give us a good performance. And I think that the line blurs and you end up with a bad Keaton performance all over. Every time he goes to that monologue, it's just painful to listen to. And I get it. Then he's uh, Reagan act- acting, you know, but then he gets off stage and then you realize that he's still talking the same way. He still he still has the same mannerism. It's, just, it's not a good performance. It's just Keaton kind of like being overwhelmed by the fact that he has to, to lead a movie. He has to carry a movie for the first time in 20 years. Have you ever seen the SNL skit where it's the trailer for the um, Fonzie biopic? It, I think like the joke is it's supposed to be directed by like the Palmer Oliver Stone or something, and it's Christopher Walken playing uh, Fonzie. And uh, there's a part where he's looking in the mirror, and it's just horrible acting, and he's going, where are my happy days? <laughs> I really felt a lot of that coming from Michael Keaton here. Yeah, I think that maybe something that affected his performance, and it was not part of the equation, was that it just goes so close to his life that he couldn't just help but be overwhelmed by emotion, you know? And it just get, got into the craft. It got in the way of the craft. You can't really be a good performer when you have all your baggage basically swimming with you. So that's an explanation. It's not an excuse. It's still a bad performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, Naomi Watts and Ed Norton and that bed. Yeah. That's some fucked up shit. It's pretty intense. And it's played mostly for laughs. Mm-hmm. That is irresponsible today, and it was irresponsible, what, four years ago? Five years ago? Five, yeah. Or it's going to be six years ago this year. Wait, no, I'm horrible at math. Five years ago, I'm sorry. Yeah, so that's – it's unnecessary. It doesn't even pay off. I mean, it's kind of – it establishes because she throws a line about him not having been able to have an erection for like six months, Mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of setting up that Edward Norton – can't get it on unless he's on stage. Or, yeah, the, the theater is his natural aphrodisiac. Yeah, but but you could establish that in a way that was kind of like less, uh, I'm not going to say offensive, but it's just in, in, in poor taste. Yeah, just less kind of overall creepy. It, less distracting, even, because I think it really takes away from, in, in a good case, though, because you're not so enamored with Michael Keaton's just vanilla delivery here but. Well, but maybe we'd focus more on him you know coach him a little more in your retu <laughs> on this performance and maybe forget about all the the extra stuff there's so much going on in this movie you don't need to add sexual assault to it outraged by this Naomi watts storms backstage uh leslie excuse me to her dressing room just bitching about uh rightfully so that ed norton just tried to like have unsimulated sex the Lars von Trier specialty on stage with her and she was pissed about it it's also uh, extremely off-putting here because obviously this wasn't part of the 
Ed Norton's groping of her, but she's like splattered in blood from right, the from, squib. Oh yeah, because Keaton's uh, the payoff, the, or not the payoff. That's a morbid way of putting it. But the way the play always ends is he kills himself. He shoots yeah. himself in the head, and so she's covered in blood. Uh, also in the dressing room is Laura, who they're just you know lamenting to each other about their horrible life's decisions with the men that they have chosen as partners, and then Laura just kisses Naomi Watts kind of out of nowhere. And then we just like cut away from it, and it's never really explained or visited again. Yeah, it's not even that she kisses her and that's it. She kisses her, and then Naomi Watts likes it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, can you do that again? Yeah. And then it was never referenced again in the movie. Nope. You didn't even see them holding hands in the background later. It's just, what's the movie saying? <laughs> that, that Oh, well, that's that's what Broadway actresses are like. This <laughs> they is, just, this they is how we up. get by. It, yeah. Broadway actresses got to stick together. We follow Mike, uh, Ed Norton, up onto the rooftop where he finds Sam. She's sitting on the ledge there. Uh, I, I'm assuming that's supposed to be some some symbolism, man. And they just have a very weird high schooly, um, very uh, creepy in Ed Norton's case game of truth or dare. Well, yeah, this dude is at least thirty years her senior. <laughs> Aesthetically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's some mileage on Ed Norton's face. Uh, all that acting it doesn't it doesn't come for free. It takes she, its soul. She's trying to turn this into like a sultry, steamy game of truth or dare, and he's really not having any of it. But he's not having any of it because he's just so cool. You know, it doesn't feel like this is a responsible adult he's saying. He's really rocking the James Dean hair and coat. It, he's it, got it, the cigarette, and he's. Just, it, <sighs> He's so tortured. You know, he's like, I wish I could see the world the way you see it. <laughs> he's not a responsible adult that's putting a stop to this and going like, hey, maybe I should take you back to your dad's. Yeah. Or, you know. He he was, yeah, basically two seconds away from saying, boy, if I was 25 years younger. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> we go to the next day, the first press, uh, I believe it was the New York Times, uh, in which Mike Shiner did an interview basically explaining what he feels the play is going to do. And also he drops the, you know, played for laughs line of he hopes Birdman doesn't drop an egg or something like that. And yeah. this sends Michael Keaton into a rage. Well, he also steals Keaton's, uh, I don't know if, if it's implied that he stole his story because, you know, when they were drinking together, Keaton tells him the story of how he became an actor because of Raymond Carver. And because his dad was an alcoholic or something like that. No, no, no. Because Carver went to see a play that Keaton did in high school. Mm. And then he sent like a napkin backstage saying, Hey, thanks for the experience or whatever. And and that's how I knew it was going to be an actor. And then the headline on the paper says, you know, Ed Norton, Raymond Carver is the reason I became an actor. And so I guess the implication is that he stole the story. Okay. And then he, when he's, Keaton is confronting him about it, he's just like, oh, I just stole him the first thing I thought about. That's right. He catches Keaton in a tanning bed because one thing this movie was lacking was a fucking bratwurst red Ed Norton in his skivvies. I mean, we already saw his butt early on. That's true because he didn't wear underwear that day. Yeah. It's always the day that you don't wear underwear that you have to go to the doctor. <laughs> uh, so Michael Keaton confronts him about it. It quickly turns violent. As this is, it, I, I didn't make that up. Ed Norton makes some reference to have an alcohol, alcoholic father, and Michael Keaton says, "You really mean that?" Because I really did have an alcoholic father. And and then he gets his Oscar clip. Yeah, he starts crying, talking about it. When in reality, he's like, "See, I can act too." <laughs> it's a goddamn game of bait and switch these two are playing. I I hate it because 
we're way past the halfway point, and I just need the movie to tell me what's what, and I need to have my feet planted on the ground. And if at this point, out of nowhere, you're deciding to establish that Keaton is a good actor, after mm-hmm. all, despite what we've seen on stage, <laughs> um, then then I can't I can't even trust my eyes. You know, it's like whenever we see him interacting with someone, is he being honest? Is he being sincere? Or is he being like he's being with with Ed Norton? The scene he's just being manipulative and and just kind of fucking with him. Mm-hmm. It's it's too late in the game to introduce that aspect to his character, especially when the Edward Norton character already does that. Mm-hmm. So because of this, they naturally they size each other up. They fucking size up like Jim Jeffries or John Sullivan with their old timey boxing stances. And it's really not too much of a fight to speak of considering it's Batman versus the Hulk. It's really <laughs> underwhelming. If this was in the schoolyard. You'd kind of be like, eh, let's go see what's for dessert. One punch gets thrown. Yeah. And then it's just some sloppy wrestling on the ground. And Ed Norton's what are you going to replace me with Ryan Gosling? I guess that was topical at the time as Ryan Gosling is prone <laughs> to be. Every few years, Ryan Gosling is trending. The internal dialogue is starting to take over. It's really starting to fucking drive Riggin crazy. He has a complete meltdown in his dressing room, starts throwing shit all over the place. He trashes a Birdman poster that the crew gave him. He's using his telekinesis also to destroy shit while all this is going on, but then also picking things up. Zach Galifianakis pokes his head in because we haven't seen him for a while. Uh, And then I I can't tell if we see what he sees because now it's Michael Keaton throwing shit everywhere. Again, just a confusing piece here, but he sees his alleged best friend having this clear meltdown and he... What does he do? He just puts more pressure on him. Yeah, he uh, he mispronounces his Scorsese's name, which, come on, man. <laughs> You're in the industry. <laughs> you should get at least that one right. Yeah. He says, Martin Scorsese is coming to the show. <laughs> and that right there wasn't a red flag for Michael Keaton. He's just like, oh, okay. Yeah, he tells him what we're sold out. There's a there's a line like three blocks around the street. Instead of just saying, hey, are you Okay. Do we need to call this thing off? I wish that they'd done... This is almost just too nitpicky, but it may be because we're in the era of superhero movies and all that stuff, but really... Oh, joy. What the hell does telekinesis have to do with birds? Why is Birdman telekinetic? I understand the flying part, Mm -hmm. but then everything else that he does when he uses his powers in this movie has nothing to do with, with... what you would think when you learn that he's... Yeah, I mean, it's like, he's Birdman. Okay, maybe if he, like, grew... like feathers or yeah he had like, like claws a, or talons rather egg, there you go you yeah. know if he was just trashing his dressing room with talons that would be different we get mike and sam part two back on the rooftop this is after the fight and he basically wants to you know why she hates him so much the worst thing that he did this is the her. pedophile going for the kill <laughs> jesus uh she explains that he wasn't there for her when she was growing up and that in return he just tried to make her feel special and it somehow leads to a kiss between the two of them. And Norton goes, but you are special. You're oh, beautiful. God, that's right. Uh, they go in for the kiss, or she goes to kiss him, and Norton tries to do the James Dean. You know, I, I can't. He does the Pacino. Don't. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't fight it too hard. He just kind of briefly shakes his head. And uh, Sam goes to talk away, and then she turns back and says, truth or dare? And he says truth, and she goes no, and then asks him again, and it's... It's it's a bit uh, rough around the edges. It's it's a bit muddy waters we're dealing with here because he follows her inside and then they presumably begin to have coitus above the theater. Yeah, 
she knew that it would work as long. Maybe he doesn't have to be on stage. It also works if he's above the stage because mm-hmm. they're like where the lights are or something, right? Yeah, he just saw that stage below him and just. <laughs> the entire time they're having sex, he's just staring at the audience or at the seats in the front. Oh, uh, it's uh, like fucking American Psycho. Just instead of the mirror, it's just dead set on the audience, just eyeing Lindsay Duncan in the crowd taking notes. It is the last dress rehearsal before opening night. Uh, prior to the climatic final scene. Uh, Riggin gets locked out. I think he goes out, steps out to have like a smoke or something. What a fucking idiot! You have this guy as the director, the main actor, and he leaves producer. before the final scene. <laughs> I gotta have a smoke. He doesn't. He he doesn't just leave. He gets locked out. I mean, does he not know the theater by now? Well, that no. It's also it's like a fucking you know Benny Hill's used to cliche, but it is like a um something you'd see in Scrubs or something like that, or you know. Uh, he goes to step out, and not only does he get locked out, but his his robe gets locked in the door, so he has to disrobe down to his underwear. Once again, we get Michael Keaton and his tidy whities This time he's not floating. He's just running. I think old Alejandro Iñárritu took, kind of took a liking to seeing Michael Keaton in his underwear. And just this is like, how we sell tickets. All right, we're going to rewrite this scene here. Uh, and then Keaton has to walk around the block, which includes walking through Times Square proper in his underwear with this really bad wig. Uh and of course, being that it's present day, millennials, they all take their phones out and record him and post it to social media. The millennials are recording him and the older people are making him sign posters. Yeah. The old, the older people that, like, this would be the equivalent of, like, you and me walking and fucking, like, I was going to say Matt Dillon, but not even that. I'm trying to think of a more <laughs> niche character. Um, Anthony uh, LaPaglia <laughs> walks by. Holy shit. They brought us LaPaglia. <laughs> Sign this. Sign my map of New York City. <laughs> he makes it back to the building and walks in for the final scene in his underwear and just starts the dialogue from back of the crowd. And because he doesn't have a gun, he just does the finger gun. Mm-hmm. It's insane because the people people actually, you know, at first they laugh and then he points the gun. I got the, the, like, the, the gun. I think there's like an audible gasp. Yeah. It, he's like, shut up, shut yeah. up. And people shut What the hell? <laughs> This is not. I've never been to Broadway, but I can't imagine that that New Yorkers fall for that shit. Yeah, but this is like bad, bad improv comedy, and the you know, the regal audience is just lapping it up, which is, I, I guess, it could be just another layer of commentary on the shit that mainstream audiences just accept as art now. Oh, right, but make up your mind. Are you making fun of, Re- of Regan, of Keaton, of of the system, or the audience, or or what? I mean. What do you like in your Ritu? I, I almost understand Keaton just going into this project to exercise his demons. Mm-hmm. I don't get what the actual, what the filmmaker, you know, the man behind it all, what is he gaining from this? What what was driving him to make this movie? What came out of it? Mm-hmm. I mean, by the time we get to the ending, nothing makes sense. Yeah. So after the show, Riggin goes next door to the bar to have a, a drink the final night before uh, op- opening night. He's tomorrow's the fucking show. Uh, and he goes to buy a drink for, again, uh, Tabitha Dickinson, um, the critic, goes over to kind of talk to her about it, and that's where she, to your point earlier, just says, I'm going to fucking bury your play no matter if it's good or bad because I, I hate you and your type. And then she goes on this tangent about, you know, basically just demonizing big blockbuster movies and uh, people that just take advantage of the system. And 
measure their worth in weekend grosses. And I was kind of on board with that. And then she started talking shit about cartoons and porn. And I was like, all right, well, come on now. You know. But also the entitlement, because in the end she goes, this is my town and Hollywood is not coming here. Yeah. <laughs> Over my dead body. Entitled much. And then Keaton just rips her apart, looks at her little notepad there and says, you know, uh, fuck, what's the word? He's labels. Labels. He's like, these are labels. He's not talking about structure. And this is like this is every... Us, this is us talking about Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> well, also the performance here is every comedian's impression of Michael Keaton. is yes. him doing the hand movements and the crazy eyebrows. And, you know, he was one step away from, you want to get nuts? Come on. <laughs> and she is aghast at the end. The first thing she does is threaten to call the cops. And then he just goes even harder on her. And she just gets up and, you know... You're done. You're finished. I'm I'm going to trash this thing tomorrow. And there's this man yelling at this woman at this bar. Nobody steps in. <laughs> nobody nobody does anything. Do it's they, a natural occurrence in the theater world, apparently. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. They're used to that critic getting yelled at by ruined actors. So this obviously just tailspins Riggins' anxiety. So he goes to the liquor store next door and gets a pint of whiskey and gets fucking shit-faced drunk and just passes out on a street corner. Possibly. Who knows? And then he wakes up the next day and we have like this intense hallucination scene where I've been really hungover before where like I can envision things. So I'm pretty but, sure that's what But is here. it a hallucination it's not like the movie ever really tells us for sure. They don't. But what he starts hearing the internal dialogue in his head is, you know, fuck this uh, theater shit. Let's make the fourth Birdman. We'll make billions. You know, you'll be uh, a million eyes. will see you. And during this, we're kind of getting visions of what that movie would look like. Right. And there's like a big monster attacking the city. Mm -hmm. And he's there as Birdman kind of outside. A la Nikki Six when he OD'd on heroin and hovered above his own body and saw himself. That's what we're getting here. Yeah. It, so it's the first time that we see Birdman in motion. We've seen mm -hmm. him in the poster plenty of times and we heard his voice but this is finally him stepping out from inside keaton's head and addressing him and he looks pretty shitty yeah you know he's kind of flying slash hovering uh behind him as he talks and it's like it looks like what a, a superhero in an snl skit would look like yes exactly it, it just doesn't look like it's worthy of all the attention of, of, of being the title of the movie but it's essentially, this is your destiny to do this. You know, you need to fly. Uh, so he goes to the rooftop of the building he's on and jumps off. You know, this is, again, blurring the lines of reality and fantasy because the people on the street are watching him like they're worried he's going to kill himself. And a guy talks him down off the ledge. And Michael Keaton says something to the effect of, I know what I have to do. Gets a running start and jumps off and then flies away like a bird. And the line I do remember is, this is how you're meant to see them. Basically, from above. You're, you're above these people. Um, and if you thought that the the special effects on Birdman flying were bad, <laughs> Keaton just looks like a like a Michael Keaton shaped kite. <laughs> he becomes Michael Keaton. He's like a flying squirrel. He's because he's wearing the trench coat <laughs> yes. and he just pulls out the sides. So he flies back to the theater, or so we think. And then I guess we snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. And. Uh, this angry taxi driver is just like, motherfucker, you got to pay me and follows him into the venue. I did laugh at that. From here. Did you recognize the cab driver? No. I was think, it I Anthony it... Molina? <laughs> I thought so, too. Or Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina, me. yeah. Either that or Richard Kind. Good Lord. <laughs> Richard Kind moonlights. The, the bowl cut was fantastic. <laughs> 
So it is opening night of the play, and it is going very well. Uh, it's We fade to the audience coming out after the first half, smoking their cigarettes, talking about how great it is. You know, I, you hear, like, mumblings and also just some certain things stick out in the crowd. Uh, if the second half's half as good as the first half, things of that nature. Um, the, the show is called what we talk about when we talk about love, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know if you ca- if you caught it, some douchebag from the audience says, what do we talk about when we talk about Reagan? Oh, God. That was some fucking Run Tomatoes critic that... just getting his blurb ready. <laughs> After the first act concludes, it's going very well, and we go back to uh, Reagan's locker room where he's just laying on his uh, counter. He's clearly contemplative and processing a lot amy ryan comes how in. is this not the biggest red flag for anyone no unbelievable amy ryan comes in and what happens is michael keaton admits uh to her that he once tried to kill himself but was attacked he tried to drown himself and he was attacked by jellyfish and ran out and he apparently has never told anybody this and she's just kind of like oh, okay okay i guess i'm gonna leave you alone now yeah well good luck break a leg she does kiss him though and leaves uh Keaton suits up for the final act, puts on the bad wig and the outfit he'll be wearing. And throughout the movie, there's been the finger gun. There was a very obvious toy gun he used as a prop. Uh, but for this, he pulls out a real fucking gun, and it's actually quite terrifying. It's a, uh, it's a hand cannon. It is a large gun. So, hits the stage, does his closing monologue about how, uh, you know, you don't love me. Does anyone love me? I don't matter. I don't really exist. Puts the gun to his head and pulls the trigger as he's done before. But uh, difference being, it wasn't a squib that went off this time. Not that anybody cares. No. Because the audience is fucking stupid. And they can't tell when somebody's brains are blown for real. I guess technically his brains wouldn't splatter because he ends up blowing his nose. He shot his nose off. But still... They just kind of look at him and give a standing ovation. And it's with- like it's not a movie; it's it's theater. I mean, you should be able to tell <laughs> when somebody shoots himself for real. Yeah, and also the sound of a gun is very distinctive. And fucking Tabitha just gets up and like walks away in what appears to be disgust. We learn that it's not. Oh, fade to black, fade in in a hotel room overlooking Central Park. You can see the Empire State Building. Yeah. Well, first the movie breaks its gimmick. Inaritu. <laughs> Five minutes away from the end credits, couldn't keep it any longer, couldn't keep it going. And then he finally cuts, and we get, like, a bunch of just shots of, uh, uh, like, the parade and... Yeah, this is just, like, fucking Tree of Life shit. Yeah. We get a bunch of dying jellyfish on the the ocean, a tree on fire, a shooting star. Yeah, they start going both ways. First you see it going up, then you see it going down. Get to the point. You see Batman 89... (laughs) Then again, multiplicity. You're gonna get that one over <laughs> if it's the last thing you do. Uh, wake up in again a hotel room overlooking Central Park. Uh, Amy Ryan's in the hotel. There's a bunch of flowers. Zach Galifianakis enters the room. Uh, Jake explains that Birdman, uh, his play was a massive success, and the big headline is "The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance," which is the the subtitle of this film. In case you were wondering why it was called that. No shit. It was a success. His blood was spilt, both literal and metaphorical. Basically, the stage was brought back to life, is what Tabitha wrote of the play. Uh, between that and the viral video, Riggin has become overnight, you know, kind of revived his career. And... Which is insane, because even even if you're assuming that Inarritu saying that the audience is stupid and they will buy anything or whatever... It's not like he can pull this off on any on every performance. This is like a one and done. He can't like shoot his nose off again. And yet Galifianakis is going like, "Oh, we're gonna 
this play is going to go everywhere. We're going to open in London and Japan and wherever. It's, but it's a shitty play yeah. with a shitty actor. The only thing that it had going for it is a gimmick that can only be done once. Yeah, exactly. It's dude shot himself. That's why <laughs> people cared. And Amy Ryan wonders if it's a suicide attempt or actually what it was. And they said they. <laughs> the woman, always a party pooper. <laughs> they said uh, they got him a new nose. He'll be fine. So, you know, as a guy that possibly just tried to kill himself, they just leave him alone in his hospital room. Uh, well, first Emma Stone brings him flowers and tells him that she just started a Twitter account for him. That's right. And she posted a picture of him on there. So she leaves. Uh, Michael Keaton goes in to take off his bandage and reveal his horrifying new nose where he looks like fucking, uh, who did I say? Rob Schneider's like dad. It was terrifying. <laughs> but he also sees for the final time in the movie Birdman, who's just sitting on the toilet in the, uh, hospital room bathroom. He then goes to the window and sees the birds flying away. And I guess he sees this as his destiny as he opens the window. And then maybe he can tell what, what we've, been talking about which is like you can't pull this off again <laughs> yeah he knows it's time exit stage left while they're still applauding so he gets on the window so opens the window which i don't know why you'd be able to open a window that high in a new york city hospital but that's here nor there opens the window steps onto the ledge uh, we don't see him jump but emma stone comes back in the room is like dad and starts panicking and then sees the window open runs and looks down in terror slowly looks up smiles Birdman. <laughs> they didn't even have the balls to give us a real ending. No. I mean, they fucked with us for two hours. They did not... It's the top spinning at the end of Inception. Yes, except that Inception had at least an actual story and characters going on. It was not somebody's veiled attempt at... A thinly veiled attempt at, at, at therapy. It had a story. There was a heist. Multiple heists. Uh, here, there's no like big JGL uh, fight in slow motion. It's just Damn it's shame. just Keaton ranting, and then we don't even know what are we supposed to take out of that ending. That he has superpowers. That she saw him like ascending to heaven. Was <laughs> she high? He got <laughs> stuck in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> she should have like shaken her head. Oh, she smiled. Oh, dad. Yeah. <laughs> and then someday, by Sugar Ray plays over the credits. <laughs> Yeah, there's no better way to end a movie that's totally inconsistent without a definitive ending. And it's just, I mean, they run out of material. You can only you can only exploit Michael Keaton's real life suffering for so long. The dude's still alive. They were gonna end it with her looking down in terror and screaming, but then Inurito changes mind at the last minute, so he's down on the street going, "Look up! <laughs> look up!" <laughs> Or it's Ed Norton does some creepy ass shit where he like gets a fucking crop duster and writes like <laughs> "Marry me in the sky" or something. Fucking who knows? Because he just disappeared. That's, that's true. The last thing you see, the last thing of relevance you see of Ed Norton is just him having sex. So that was his arc. Well, there's also him that before the play goes live, him and Emma Stone are doing like the couple in sophomore year of high school where they're leaning against the locker and holding hands see they get that moment and uh andrea riceboro and naomi watts don't correct and fucking keaton just looks at him like what are you gonna do that's what makes him go out for a cigarette that's right yeah so birdman i think i have exhausted my resources on this let's, let's float over to real talk let's do truth or dare truth 
You're boring. The truth is always interesting. Do you want to fool around with me? No. Really? Why not? That's the second question. It's the second part. I'd be afraid I couldn't get it up. That didn't seem to be a problem for you on stage. That's because nothing is a problem for me on stage. I want to ask another question. You already asked another question. One more. Go ahead. If you weren't afraid, what would you want to do to me? I'd pull your eyes out of your head. That's sweet. I'd put them in my own skull. I'd look around so I could see this street the way I used to when I was your age. All right, and we are recording for Real Talk for Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. All right. Closing a big gap in my modern film history here, and I'm very happy to say we did so. Uh, Birdman has one hell of a film. It was released in... It premiered in Venice, apparently, in August of 2014. It was released on October 17th in the United States in 2014 at a budget of $18 million, which... I was going to say it seems kind of modest, but it seems like the filmmaking was pretty simplistic, so it wasn't... Yeah, and maybe this is one of those prestige projects where people... Took, took significant he, pay cuts. Yeah, like to... Edward Norton was not asking for Hulk money. Yeah. Uh, the box office return of a bit over $100 million, because I remember uh, this being one of those that really, after it won, is when everyone went out to the theater to see it. Uh, of course, as we mentioned, directed by Alejandro Inurito, Inurito, excuse me, uh, written by Alejandro, also, fuck, th- there's no way I can pronounce these names, Nicholas Giacoboni, Alexander Di, Di Nolares, and Armando Bo. Got that one. <laughs> Are those uh, Keaton's therapists? <laughs> Apparently. Um so going into this, because I hadn't seen it, I was pretty excited about it. My research was fairly minimal because I didn't really want to spoil much on it. Uh, but the number of visible cuts is 16. I thought that was pretty fascinating. And the other thing I read that I thought was kind of cool was uh, Galifianakis, just due to the way it was filmed with all, like, remembering your marks and, like, their lines – a lot of his flubbing of lines in this are legitimate, but uh, Two just liked him so much he kept him in. So Scorsese is, is a thing? Was Sa- not an acting choice? Safe to say. Um, and uh, the they only f- filmed it like two months. It was something pretty quick. I imagine, God, so much to memorize. And, and just rehearse and get it right? That's yeah. uh, 16 cuts. I mean, there's, definitely there should be more than that. I'm guessing when they say uh, noticeable, they're talking about moments where you know that there's no way that that could have happened because, you know, they go up to the sky and mm-hmm. then they come back and it's night. And, you know, well, obviously there was a cut here because yeah, there's yeah. no way that. <laughs> or the like when they go into the bar behind him and then it looks like the camera goes into his back and it goes. To uh-huh. back. Yeah, yeah. yeah, things like that. But still fucking very impressive. It, it's one of those things that in a lesser movie, I'd call it a gimmick. But for this, I feel like it really works with what they're trying to tell. Well, yeah, I, I think it works with the 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 rhythm of the movie it being about live theater and that kind of thing where you're doing theater there's no cuts mm-hmm. there's no second takes you just you just on, on 
you know, on stage and you do whatever you have to do to keep it going. So it was nominated and won Best Picture at the 2015 Academy Awards, the 87th annual. Uh, Alejandro Iñárritu won Best Director. We'll come back to this and visit our thoughts about it. Uh, Michael Keaton won, or excuse me, was nominated for Best Actor. That was, of course, uh, won by Eddie Redmayne. Uh, let's see here. What else did we have nominations for? Emma Stone got a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Oh, I remember. And, of course... Edward her, Norton. Yeah, yeah. But I was going to say, of course, her clip was when uh, she's oh. she's yelling at Keaton for not having a Facebook page. Yeah, naturally. Yeah, Edward Norton, the man of the hour in this one. Uh uh, I don't know. Him and Keaton are pretty neck and neck. It also won Best Original Screenplay. And did it win Best Score? That drumming is awesome. God damn, it wasn't even nominated. <laughs> Grand Budapest won Best Score. Also, fucking imitation game. Uh, Interstellar, Mr. Turner, which I don't remember what that is. And The Theory of Everything. Interst- Hans Zimmer's the man, so that makes sense. Uh, okay, so... We can before we can deep dive into this. Out of the best picture nominees that year was American Sniper, Boyhood, Imitation Game, Selma, Theory of Everything, and Whiplash. I, I probably have to watch Whiplash again, but I fucking love that movie. So, Whiplash is great. So that might be the only one I would put in contention with this. Because did I ever tell you my thing about Boyhood? Uh, Linklater should have won Best Director, but the movie it's hard to gauge it because it is such an like an experiment in filmmaking, and it's almost more. I would be more compelled to call it almost like a documentary than anything else because of the way it was crafted. So I thought he should have won for best director, but I am perfectly content looking at this list and seeing that Birdman <laughs> won best picture. Who else was nominated for director? Richard Linklater for Boyhood, Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher, which is an excellent movie. Uh, Wes Anderson for his latest uh, film school movie, Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> And Morton Tidum for the imitation game. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big Inyaritu fan, so I was I was rooting for him as much as I love Boyhood. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Boyhood again. I don't know Criterion, baby. That's a bit. It's an investment. You know, it's three hours. It is. It's a blue is the warmest color. You got to have <laughs> you know two parts of your day blocked out for it. So all this is to say, this definitely fucking swept up some awards and that's just the academy awards that's not to mention all the other things it won all its top 10 list it was placed on um surprised i kind of went into it as spoiler free as i did like i had no idea he actually shoots himself at the end of the movie and um you haven't seen that picture of emma stone uh you know from the very end her looking up and smiling yeah um, of course without the context yeah okay (laughs) it's called birdman there's probably a bird in it somewhere (laughs) watching Django the other day. His name's Joe. Perhaps he was cold one day. You know how these things happen. Um, yeah, great stuff. And also fascinating uh, take on the industry at the time. Now, with all this praise and um, fellating we're doing of this movie, we would be remiss if we didn't leave the 9% out that didn't enjoy it. 9% represented here. Uh, by three quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. Uh, Angela Moretta from Cinemascope says, For all its carping about the virtues of unfettered creativity, Birdman is little more than a road confirmation of what Middlebrough artists and prestige-charmed critics already believe. 
It's a tongue twister. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt Goldberg from Collider says, Birdman is desperate to be noticed. And if it throws up enough artistic flourishes, then perhaps you'll give the picture the respect it craves. That's mean. And finally, James Robert Douglas from Junkie says, When high style meets dumb ideas, it can be hard to tell which way is up. Reading over the other nominees from that year, I forgot that was the year that Everything is Awesome from the Lego Movies nominated. So that was the year Tegan and Sarah performed at the Lonely Island at the Oscars. I'm what? just glad it didn't win. So Fuck off. We're all happy. You got your performance. I got my, my snub. And I just remember that night also because it was the only time that someone in WWE didn't fucking check the calendar and scheduled a pay-per-view the same night as the Oscars. <laughs> and there was also a UFC event that night. So in our living room, like we had three monitors set up going at all times. <laughs> Uh, the Oscars were this is the one with the audio, and the other two were on mute. Uh, okay, fucking yeah. That's I assumed all the uh, critiques of this would be people that just relied on the self importance or you know trying to call attention to it. Yeah, it's like oh, it's Hollywood making a movie about itself, a movie about the industry. Not really. Yeah. It's a director who cares about his craft making a movie that is lashing out against what his beloved medium is becoming. I think it's funny because no matter who's speaking and what they're speaking against, you can see the truth in what they're saying, mm -hmm. even if they're being dicks about it. I mean, anytime that Edward Norton rants against the industry or against Keaton or whenever Keaton rants back against them in whatever the critic says or what they say to the critic, all that stuff has has bits of truth in there along with all the hyperbolic statements that they throw. So it's I think that's part of what makes it engaging, that everybody at some point gets to be right or mm -hmm. at least somewhat right. Even yeah. millennial Emma Thompson, she has a point. She just she's just Emma a little Thompson, too proud of it. I'm sorry. You fucking mixed her shoot name and her work name together there. <laughs> Emma Stone. <laughs> Can you imagine Emma Thompson as uh, as Michael Keaton's daughter hooking up with Edward <laughs> Norton? Uh, for some Truth reason, uh, Tabitha, I kept seeing her as um, Helen Mirren. I am going to destroy your play, <laughs> Mr. Bond. <laughs> Yeah, it's um I agree with what like I didn't want to be like fuck yeah at a lot of it but like <laughs> the whole sequence of him saying, you know, the the hangover fever dream whatever you want to call it when he's just talking about like fuck this art stuff, you know, you can do this it's so much easier and it's you know, that's always been my thing. I understand why and that goes out of its way to explain why that is. You'll make all this money. Billions of people will uh -huh. see it. You know, you get to save the world, that type of thing. But, um, yeah, some of that was confusing me there at the end. I did like how it completely embraced the ridiculousness of it. And he fucking flew away in the end. Yeah. I So my my Birdman story is that I went to see it. It was it opened during AFF. So I was knee deep in the Austin Film Festival. And I took a break one morning to go see it at the Regal. And I went. Uh, with friend of the podcast, previous guest, Brandon Curtis, mm -hmm. and also uh, my roommate at the time. And so we watched it, and it wasn't like a packed screening or anything. And I loved it. And then the movie ended, and I was just mesmerized. And we were just sitting there through the credits, and there's these like three older ladies sitting all the way at the back of the theater. And uh, as we're exiting after the credits, the credits are over, I was you know just excited talking to them about it, and it was clear that I enjoyed the movie. So the two ladies are still sitting down and one of them looks up to me and she goes, so did you like it? And I'm like, yeah, I thought it was awesome. And she's like, okay, can you explain the ending to me? <laughs> and I don't remember what I told her. I mm -hmm. mean, it was, 
I'm sure it was something that I believed. It's not like I completely bullshitted her, mm-hmm. but I. It's not like I actually could tell you. Oh, I am for sure, like 100 percent know what happened. Yeah, you know what it means. I think as we were watching it this time and uh, just thinking back at that first time that I watched it, I think that the the main feeling I got was that behind what seems to be happening, which is that she sees her father fly. Mm-hmm. I think you could read that, oh, she's seeing her father for the first time in a way that she didn't see him the entire movie. Yeah. You know, she has seen him, even when she's being nice to him, she sees him as a has-been. And then suddenly, in that look that she's giving at the, at whatever she's seeing at the end of the movie, she finally sees him as somebody else, as something, you know, that's grown, something that's worthy of... Uh, appreciation all that stuff so i'm happy with that explanation i'll need it more explained than that uh but there's some crazy theories um i mean i've seen this movie a few times and i there's one theory that says that he actually drowned that the the jellyfish killed him and that those flashes that you see before he wakes up in the hospital after shooting himself Mm -hmm. is really what he sees right before he dies so the entire movie is a hallucination that happened to him as he was dying because jellyfish drowned him. Interesting. I mean... That's a bit out there. It's out there, but, I mean, if that makes you happy, I understand the need for some sort of closure. I need to know what happened at yeah, the end, yeah. you know? Uh, I necessarily... I don't. I mean, I think that as, as far as far as I get thematic closure, I don't need to know the specifics of what's exactly happening, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I mean, I don't think that he has powers at any point during the movie. No. It's like you said, like that thing with the cab driver that makes it pretty clear that it's always in his head, and then mm-hmm. we, the real world catches up. Correct. Yeah, um, I did catch this here also because I called it out just randomly where I stopped on the page. The reason uh, it was conspicuously left out of best original score is because there's a rule in the Academy Awards that um, if it contains over a half hour of non-original music then it can't be nominated for best original. So the music that he hears when he's flying and that's like, like the, the, already created classical music. Uh, yeah. So I got some closure on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, How do you feel about the, the parallels between what we perceive as Michael Keaton's life and career and this character? Well, that's what, it's like the wrestler. That's what makes it so compelling. <laughs> right. I think it's, it wouldn't be half of the movie that it was if it wasn't for that. I mean, I don't think Michael Keaton hates Batman. But <laughs> so paid for a couple of houses. Yeah. And, and he did have a career. I mean, I don't know what – there is some time missing. I remember there were there were some years where Michael Keaton was not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know if that's you know just him doing a Rick Moranis and just taking a step back from the industry or if it was – Yeah, it's not like his career tanked. It's not like he never had anything after that. But – it certainly makes for an interesting narrative and also, you know, interpretation in the viewer's mind, which is like, oh, maybe he did feel this way, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, there's something extra when you see Michael Keaton giving those speeches against mm-hmm. superheroes and Marvel movies. And just... Preach, brother. I'm with you because, yeah, Batman's fucking better than any of those Marvel movies. Fuck are. you. Come on. Keaton, you, Batman's, you know they're okay. Uh, okay, the first one, Batman Returns is like... You want to talk about a fever dream? That's that entire movie. <laughs> I I recall liking the second one better. Um, wow. Yeah, Catwoman right sexy. Us. Well, well, duh. <laughs> Penguin one. sexy too. 
I mean, if you're into into that kind of stuff, <laughs> if you're into Danny DeVito. Well, yeah, where his premise is to just figure out how to get all the kids in the sewer and then he doesn't really know what he's going to do with them. <laughs> I mean, checks out for a crazy <laughs> Batman that's villain. True. That's true. That's the easiest way to argue it. Tim Burton's like, yeah, he's crazy. The doy. <laughs> um, he looks like a penguin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need to rewatch this, though. I definitely want to do that to kind of try to pick up on more i was just kind of trying to take it all in uh as you may have been able to tell my notes were fairly minimal because i was just really enjoying this and like i said i didn't do much research in it because i kind of wanted to go in rather blank slate-ish um the only thing like i could really point to as being overly heavy-handed and self-important is the speech that tabitha makes about why she's going to trash his play at the same time that character is supposed to be the villain so yeah it needs to be that way i i get chills i know it's i mean in a way all the speeches are very on the nose. Yes. But these are artists. Even the even the critic, you know, she's a writer. She she has uh their code. Yeah, they they tend to be dramatic. So I I buy it and I really I really like how they're delivered. And yeah, she's 100% the villain. I mean, yeah. she's just so evil. I'm surprised none of those reviews said that being that they are critics. I felt personally attacked by this movie. Well, I think that they all probably identified. They're like, "Oh yeah, there's critics like that, but it's not me." That's, <laughs> they, a, that's a great fight point. With, with yeah. the other critics. Yeah, it's all those other assholes, not me. Uh, Ed Norton, the joke, obviously, that I've always heard about this, and I think it's not just exclusive to the circles I run in, but uh, playing the actor that's difficult to work with was kind of, you know, overly meta, wink, wink, haha, because that's his reputation. I, I think he's in on the joke, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. I think he, he probably relishes the fact that he got to play a version of himself. Yeah, he wasn't at the premiere going, why is everyone fucking laughing? <laughs> yeah. Um, Naomi Watts is almost the forgotten son of this movie uh, in that. <laughs> no, that's she, Andrea Riceborough. <laughs> I, that's fair. I'm not overly familiar with her. I am familiar with Naomi Watts and she's fucking stupendous. So yeah, I think that just speaks to the movie's cast that Amy Ryan, Zach Galifianakis, a very tame and well like polished Zach Galifianakis. Mm-hmm. But you have all these people that could be the leading role in a movie that are just almost like not secondary, but definitely just background players. Yeah, they're they're full on supporting. I I have a soft spot for Andrea Riceborough just because I like her so much in this movie. I liked her in uh, Oblivion, which is mm-hmm. the other big movie that I remember her from. But in this, I mean, she's just so good, and she is mostly background. Yeah, she gets a couple scenes where she, you know, it's like we mentioned Contrarian's Corner. It doesn't bother me, but it's true that her stories go nowhere. She's pregnant and she isn't. She's attracted to Naomi Watts. That goes nowhere. I mean, they make out. That's yeah, like, that that was the only thing that was like, mm. Well, I mean, I think that I can justify it in my head as in like, well, you need to add some flavor, right? Like when you're like putting on a show, there's a lot of shit going on and it's not all about Michael Keaton. What I was going to say is like what the movie tries to do is not really give you time to catch up. It just drops you in a universe. It yeah. Dro- it drops you into this world and in. You know, any world like that, there's just going to be shit that doesn't really make sense going on in the background. Everybody has their own little stories, mm-hmm. and you know, but this one only focuses on Michael Keaton for the most part. Uh, I love it, Norton, too. He can pull it off. It, it, the fact that he is a complete dick, and yet I, I'm with him. You know, through the movie, I, I think that he's charming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not as creeped out by the uh, the relationship between him and Emma Stone as I made it sound in Trans Corner, yeah. but this is the first time I've noticed the age difference, or at least, I mean, 
clearly she's supposed to be older in the movie than she looks. Mm-hmm. But just the contrast in their appearance, because she's just so pale and skinny and just like wide eyed in this movie. Has and a bad bleach job in her hair like a young girl would, things yeah, like that. And yeah, he, he's old and yeah. It makes sense for their characters though. Uh oh yeah, I buy it. I mean yeah. she would be starstruck. And he would be trying to rekindle his youth. I fucking almost cried at that line of I'm gonna rip your eyes out. Yes, because yes. she tries to set him up for this sexual thing. Like what would you do to me? And he's I would rip your eyes out and put them on my head and so I could look at the street the way I used to when I was your age and it was just like <laughs> fuck. Time is fleeting. Kiss me at Norton. Yeah. Yes. Please. Before we get any older. <laughs> Come here, Bruce. <laughs> um Amy Ryan, we joke, it's so hard to get over Holly. Mm-hmm. It, like, but that's what makes her when she's good, like she is in this movie, so much more. Impa- it's the, the Steve Carell thing of like why he was so fucking terrifying in Foxcatcher was because I was used to Michael Scott. Yeah, and I will even give her more props though because she is she still looks like Holly. Yeah, Carell kind of transformed himself in Foxcatcher. <laughs> Did the Bradley Cooper Elephant Man <laughs> stick, and um, the chemistry with her and Michael Keaton is just fucking fantastic. I, I really believe it and i think my favorite scenes with keaton or with her especially the one the admission of the suicide attempt to her is really good did you catch the tear i it's the first time i've seen the tear like rolling yeah. down his nose yeah that's pretty awesome yeah and it, it, not kidding I, it did scare me when he pulled out the real gun i was like fuck so when that happened were you did you assume that he was gonna shoot himself mm-hmm. yeah and then they pulled a fight club fittingly <laughs> yeah I, I guess it was to show his dedication to the the craft, but also I guess you could interpret it as he did want to kill himself, but then he backed out of it. The I, last I was going to ask you that. Do you think that he was going to kill himself? Because I, especially now, I, I've, now that I've watched it a few times, I was 100% convinced that, oh, no, he's known for a while that he was going to kill himself. I mean, from the moment that he has the big Birdman hallucination, I think that he comes to terms with the fact that this is it. Yeah. He's never going to be respected in the theater, but he doesn't want to go back to be Birdman, so let's just go out with a bang. Literally. Literally. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I There were some points in this where I was kind of like, is he going to turn into the bird at the end, like in Black Swan? <laughs> <laughs> like, I was kind of had some uh, fearful premonitions of that coming. So the ending definitely was startling, but so then when he just comes to again, mm-hmm. I think that was, I think the jellyfish and the falling star, I think that's supposed to be like, I think the one him dying, but then he comes back to right. Yeah. You just see your life flash through your eyes, mm-hmm. or you see some stuff flash through your eyes. I guess I didn't get the symbolism of uh, Birdman taking a shit at the end. Well, I to me the main thing is not so much that he's taking a shit, but he's quiet. Mm-hmm. It's the first time in the movie that you've seen him and he's not talking. Okay. So does it mean that he's at peace finally? That he's reached some sort of peace and. He's confident in himself in a way that he wasn't confident in yeah. the entire movie. Okay, I, I can. Yeah, I can take that. I, I was just kind of. I mean, you to could you things could, together. I you was could shocked see that it. looked like Rob Schneider's dad. <laughs> I wrote Rob Schneider is so much better. I wrote Brad Garrett. <laughs> uh, Ray's brother. Yeah. Oh no 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 no. <laughs> um, I think that if you wanted to go with a creepier, more uh, more of a downer. The reveal of uh, Birdman just sitting in the toilet, it just means that, well, he's never going away. 
you're still mm-hmm. successful, you've achieved what you wanted to achieve, and he's still there. Yeah. Silently judging you, waiting for you to relapse. Yeah, that is it, that is a downer. <laughs> right. And then he's like, Well, fuck it, I guess I'm jumping then. Yeah. I did enjoy that ending greatly. Thought it was creative and just the movie the tone it had set, I joke a lot about tonal inconsistencies in it, but it definitely sets a, a tone and it's not necessarily one of realism. It's these real life emotions and these real themes and messages, but they're placed in the middle of this man's like hallucination of life. And so that ending fits. And I guess it says the artist always flies highest, <laughs> something like that. He will rise above criticism. That's where you belong, above them. <laughs> Emma Stone was really good, but I, I didn't know if that necessarily warranted a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, it's hard because you haven't seen The Theory of Everything, but I think Keaton was robbed that year. He, I can he tell was... you he was robbed just based on it being Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> but you're biased. That's the problem. You I just, am. You just hate Redmayne. Fucking and... Hugh Grant 1.5. <laughs> he He's good in The Theory of Everything. I'm sure he's good in a lot of things, but like he... It's just Eddie Redmayne. Can't do it, man. And also, uh, being completely honest, dropping all shtick and whatnot, the story of Stephen Hawking to me seems like one of those that is very inspirational but also depressing as fuck. So, Oh, it is. Yeah, I always have a really hard time motivating to watch extremely depressing bio pictures. I wouldn't have watched it if he hadn't gotten nominated. That's how mm. I ended up watching it. And, just, and everybody told me it was good, and it, and it is good, not just for his performance. The movie itself is good, but it's, it's a rough watch. Yeah. Even as much as they try to lighten it and – Make it into a, a, a tale of you know triumph, but yeah, big downers like that, especially in my older age now, can like fucking wipe out blocks of days of my life. Like after I watched fucking Manchester by the Sea, I was just like, Fuck. Left no funk. Yeah, like it's not fun, man. So bringing it back to Birdman, though, I mean, I can't really find for all the joking holes I poked in the first half. If I were extremely cynical and did not care for the message it had, I could probably uh, extrapolate those and go deeper into that. But that was just basically the only way I could really come about like an argument to make against it. But those aren't things that bother me. And I agree with what the movie's saying, except for putting down cartoons. I'm not a fan of that because because <laughs> I know that, that the character's supposed to be the villain, but there are still people that you know perpetuate the idea that the Oscars died in ninety. Two oh, and Beauty and the Beast was, was nominated for Best Picture, and it's just like that's such a dated way of thinking. That said, there are plenty of animated movies that are made with just the intention of cashing in and you know living for the weekend type of thing. At the same time, yeah, Beauty and the Beast. I mean, we could be here all day listing animated movies that are good uh, that have actual true artistic merit. Ninety nine percent of Pixar's output. God, yes. So I think that was just an automatic defense mechanism. Like, whoop. <laughs> but I understand the the point that was trying to be made, and I agree with. It but all. yeah, that's okay. They they all make good points, and you know they're facing off against each other. Because I also I totally see Ed Norton's pretentious point of view mm-hmm. of like you know, well, how dare you go and make movies that make so much money while I'm here being a true actor and really putting sweat and blood on on stage yeah. and whatever. And I mean. It's an asshole way of putting it, but at the same time, yeah, you know, maybe I can see how somebody could definitely value more a, a real experience versus, you know, fucking Transformers 4 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Keaton, you know, and, and there is something to be said for you – know, who wouldn't take that paycheck? Mm-hmm. 
I was reading about um because I rewatched Pain and Gain recently because I love that movie and reading some of the not necessarily critical reviews but a lot of like just fan reviews and stuff. I think that was met with a similar attitude in that how dare these guys try to make a movie now that says something after they've made so many cheap <laughs> cash-ins on shit and it's just like okay, well you can appreciate that they're trying to do something cuz uh what do we think about what do we talk about when we talk about the rock? <laughs> money. <laughs> made lots and lots of money. Um but he's like legitimately good in that. They all are. And that kind of feeds into what we're talking about with this movie. I can understand, though, especially from people in the industry, resentment um, towards those that do, you know, just big blockbuster budget movies that feel what they do has more merit and they deserve the limelight and the spotlight. But there's, I mean, ultimately, there's room for both. And the there movie, is. because the movie has to pit them against each other, mm -hmm. obviously, he won't, they won't let anybody take the middle ground. But it certainly doesn't feel like it now. And it's five years after that movie, and it feels like it's an even more flooded market now. I don't, see, I don't think so. I think that the person, and I might have a different perception because, you know, I still work at a movie theater, mm -hmm. so I see everything that comes out. But I've always, even from, you know, for years, I mean, from when we were working together, I would always tell anybody who told me there was nothing to see, nothing to watch at the theater, I would just tell them, you're not looking. Because there's always one or two movies that nobody's going to. Mm -hmm. You could be going to the, to see this movie at the theater and helping it. You know, the reason they don't get made is because or, or you don't see them more. It's because nobody's coming to watch it. So instead of complaining about it, how about you go and support those smaller movies? You know, you're waiting. I'm feeling personally attacked right now. It's not going. I just realized as I was saying it, <laughs> it's not an attack to you, Alex. I'm thinking of, you know, we'll get people that call and they're angry because some small movie, it's on its third week and it's down to playing only one showtime at night. Mm -hmm. And they're mad that they only playing one showtime at night. I'm like, where were you on opening weekend yeah. when that movie needed you? I mean, it's just people are out to make money. You can't blame them for having 10 screens of Avengers when Avengers keeps selling out. Yeah. You know, if if you really want the artsy movies, support them. Mm -hmm. But it's just like, well, unless it fits my schedule to perfection. It's like, you got to meet us halfway. Yeah, I feel that. I do need to get back in the groove of going to see movies. It feels like I think the last maybe dozen movies I've paid to see, maybe two of them have been new releases. It's just other <laughs> been like old movies that are screening at the draft house. Hey, we watched that, uh, that movie about the guy that inspired Rocky. Um, Oh, we did go see, uh, I think it was just called Chuck. Chuck, yeah. yeah. You know, that was us supporting a small movie. That was. That was us supporting the leave. <laughs> Naomi Watts was in that too. Yeah. Brings it all together. Uh, yeah, Birdman's fantastic. It's um, it's simple at the same time. Obviously, there's really a, a lot of complex reads that can go into it. But, you know, for the most part, I don't feel like it's a movie that may, up until maybe the ending, you, you shouldn't really have a hard time following it. Yeah, and it's just so much fun. I mean, obviously, your mileage may vary depending on how much tolerance you have to show business. I, I eat that shit up, so... Yeah, and we talk about safe picks. Uh, you know, we've been talking about that a lot in this arc about safe picks from the Oscars. Oh, and it's yeah. like, I, I could already see the embedded narrative had this not won. It's because it's talking shit about the film industry, and that's why it didn't win. Yeah, so instead, uh, maybe it becomes like, oh, well, it won because it's a movie about show business, and Hollywood loves mm -hmm. those Uh it was based on the tone of it. It was damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm happy. It's I think that the main 
attack at the time was, oh, well, it's just so gimmicky. You know, it's gimmicky because it's all in one shot. It's gimmicky because they cast Michael Keaton. It's gimmicky because it's about the industry. Yeah, and but what I said is, for me personally, you typically, I, if this movie hadn't worked for me, I would say that. Typically, I use that gimmicky thing to assign to a movie if it's something that doesn't work for me. But right. It works if- for me, so I don't give a shit. If it has nothing but the gimmick, mm-hmm. then you know, then it's noticeable. But when it uses the gimmick as a tool to tell a story that's compelling, I was entertained, you know. And it's like the sixth, seventh time I've seen this movie. Yeah, I I think I might have liked Whiplash a little bit better though. I'd have to rewatch both of them, but just based on a knee jerk reaction, I think Whiplash probably would have been one of my favorite movies of that year. Yeah, unlike Whiplash. Uh, or rather, unlike Birdman, Whiplash I caught way after the fact. Like, it already left theaters when I watched it. Mm-hmm. So I'd had time for the hype to get to me, and I was expecting greatness. With this one, I was expecting a good movie, because, I, like I said, I like Inyaritu. I love uh, his first movie, Amores Perros. It's just, it's great. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, I was primed to watch something that I, I was expecting to be good, but uh, but no it ended with Whiplash. By the time I got to Whiplash, everybody was raving about it, mm-hmm. and, you know. It's good stuff. All right, that was Birdman. Um, Good bird, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, we did not praise that line enough. Yeah, Ed Norton takes a bite out of a chicken leg and says, that's good bird, man. God bless. <laughs> so that concludes Birdman. Uh, what's on deck for us next? I'm not entirely sure. We need to like figure out the exact release schedule, but mm-hmm. I know that what we're recording next is our two bonus episodes, mm-hmm. uh, our, our Journey to the Livestream episode. So we're going to do uh, The African Queen, which is our 100% one, and then we're going to do London, which is, uh, I think, 16%. Uh, it's real bad. It's really low. I haven't seen London. You haven't seen The African Queen. Mm-hmm. We're, we're ready to have some fun. 14% for London. Uh, well, we're talking about it. Let's... It's topical, though, because Chris Evans, Captain America, is in it. And who's the the actress? Jessica Biel. It's Chris Evans, Jessica Biel, Jason Statham with a ridiculous wig. And um... so like a ridiculous Jersey accent. <laughs> Isla Fisher as well. Uh, all right. Well, so that's that's our journey to the live stream. Actually, let's, let's drop the promo for live stream for The Cure right here. Boom. I'm Nick. And I'm Justin, and we can't believe it's already time for the 2019 live stream for The Cure. Thanks to our amazing peers, listeners, and supporters, last year we crushed our goal of $5,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. The Cancer Research Institute is funding research into immunotherapy to create a future immune to all forms of cancer. Every single cent we raise goes to them. And they're also rated over 92% on CharityNavigator.org. This year, we're aiming our sights even higher with our most ambitious event to date. Join us May 17th through the 19th on twitch.tv slash epicfilmguys for 40 hours of live content from us and other amazing shows who will join us to try to reach $7,500. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure for more information or to find out how you can be a part of the event. Together, we can make a difference. So that was the live stream for The Cure 3 going on from May 17th to May 19th. We will be on on May 18th. That's Saturday from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will tell you which movie we're doing soon. Not just yet. But yeah, uh, as as a warm up, uh, 
uh, to get ourselves in the mindset of doing a show just within an hour, we're going to do, like I said, The African Queen and London. Not sure when those get released. Mm. Uh, also, uh, we are recording our final. This was the official ending to the award season. And then we have our unofficial ending, which Correct. is our Green Book episode, the most recent uh, Best Movie Academy Award winner. And our friend and former uh, guest uh, Eddie Strait will be joining us for that. Edwin Strait. Yes. So that will also get released soon. So those three are in the are, pipeline. Uh, in the pipeline. And then as far as like official episodes, I sent you a text, Alex, and you didn't reply to it. So I'm going to put you on the spot right now. Uh-huh. Uh Do you remember what I proposed for our next two? I feel like you did. And I was jacked for it. Uh, I said for the next rotten, which would be next, you know, following Birdman, the next one should be rotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said Annie. Okay. The Jamie Foxx ah. musical, which is in the doldrums. It's like 10% or something. Uh, Rose Byrne was in that. Yes. And my boy, uh, who's in real life, he's married to Rose Byrne. I don't know. A lucky man. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, God. Who do I love that's like uh, kind of like an underappreciated actor? You're making me go through like five years of back catalog here. <laughs> It'll come back to me. Anyway, and then we would follow that with Aladdin, the original Disney Aladdin, which isn't like 90s, you know, 94, 95, because I thought it would be a nice tie in to the live action Aladdin that's getting released sometime around that. Barf. <laughs> Have you seen the pictures? Yes, I've seen the trailer for it. Not a fan? No. Make something original. Hey, you don't know where they're going to take this. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's not like they're CGI in like a brand new Robin Williams or something. I mean, just having Will Smith play the genie and knowing that he's not aping Robin Williams. He's just doing his own take on the genie. I think that that's enough to... I'd rather see a, an original Disney movie with Will Smith in it. Well, I mean, maybe we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully one day. The Fresh Prince adapted to Disney. The Fresh Prince of Egypt. Uh, that was DreamWorks. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, we could we could settle on those, uh, okay. And that should probably you know take us through June or May. We'll we'll see. Okay, the schedule. But you know, okay, let's settle on Annie and yeah, uh, yeah. So if you haven't seen them yet, or if you saw them a long time ago, and you want to refresh your memory uh, in order for our upcoming episodes, The African Queen, Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn classic, London, uh, Captain America, Jessica Biel classic, <laughs> Annie. Uh, a Jamie Foxx musical that bombed. Yeah, hard. Um, and Aladdin. Aladdin. Disney classic. Yes. And Green Book. But everybody's seen Green Book. I haven't. The best year of 2018. Well, that's, yeah. you are the last one the, the to last jump on that bastion. wagon. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely have to watch that in preparation. Um, before we get to plugs, I have uh, a couple of things, a little bit of a feedback. Um, you might remember during the Hudson Hawk episode, we were kind of at a loss when we were trying to think. I suggested, I threw out the idea that maybe Bruce Willis was not the ideal choice to play Hudson Hawk. Mm-hmm. And then we we're trying to figure out who would play Hudson Hawk. And it was just like, well, we can come up with anything. So I said, well, maybe we should ask the guys from the casting couch. And then it turns out that they had already done an episode on Hudson Hawk. Nice. So here are their top three picks for uh, as a replacement uh, for Bruce Willis. They would have... Michael Keaton as Hudson, Hudson Hawk. Okay. I can see it working. Yeah. We just saw him, you know, yeah. it would have been great. Um, kind of like left field pick, Tony Danza. Okay. <laughs> I mean, do you think that would have affected his career one way or the other? 
Uh, there's no way of knowing now. <laughs> and finally, this tickled me to no end. John Travolta. Oh man, that would have been incredible. I can't even imagine, but yeah, that'd be wondrous. The song and dance numbers and all that stuff. It made for him. Uh, also, oddly enough, on the same week we released the Hudson Hawk episode, uh, another podcast called Flix X-Rate released a Hudson Hawk episode. Nice. And and they were both retweeted and they added the podcast Movie Geek and Proud, who also did a Hudson Hawk episode. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you could have a trilogy. It's a, a popular. A quadrilogy if you added the Recasting Couch episode of Hudson Hawk ne- uh, goodness. Also, it was funny because so many – there are many things that – all podcasts have in common. Everybody calls out the the musical numbers as being great. Everybody calls out, you know, the comedy as being like cartoonish or whatever. But then there's some things that only certain podcasts mentioned. Mm-hmm. Even though we mentioned it to each other while we we're watching the movie, I completely forgot when we we're doing the episode. Another, I think, Flix X Ray uh, uh, mentioned it. There's that really awkward line from the guy that plays Zangief, where they're spying on Bruce Willis and Andy McDowell. You and want he... me to rape them? Yes. Yeah. What the fuck is up with that? That I've still that's been stuck with me since we watched that movie <laughs> and been un- unable to make any sense of it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, a good time. Uh, so you know, if you like Hudson Hawk, if you like our episode, on it, there's there's more out there. And then uh, our friend Hans Rodgieser from Nacion Combi, he uh, he sent me a few messages about Walter Mitty. I guess he had just listened to the episode, mm-hmm. um, and and apparently he's read. The original story, the original Walter Mitty uh, story from Playboy, I guess the Playboy one. But you know, in Peru, that was just like I don't know. <laughs> Highlights magazine. Highlights. Uh, yeah, he says it's nothing like the movie. It's just it all takes place in one day, and it's just some dude, Walter Mitty and his wife, and then just spend the whole day running errands, and Walter escapes into his fantasy land as they're doing errands. Okay, and that's it. It's <laughs> oh. it. That's simple. <laughs> yeah. So he likes the movie a lot better. He actually he says he got really emotional. He almost cried. He identified a lot with the Sean Penn's character. One? Yeah. Okay. He identified with the champagne character. <laughs> so, Aw. I know. <laughs> Beautiful things don't ask for attention. Yep. Yep. Uh, so anyway, what plugs do you have, my friend? I only have the one. I guess we'll start with the uh, the usuals, which is the festive years for providing our opening and closing tracks. Uh, opening Last Stand, closing Summer 99. Check them out online, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, iTunes. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, Hans Roth Geezer with our logo. Wow. I what? think it's the first time you've said his last name. Uh, and you got it. You nailed it. Okay. Nice. I've been uh, practicing. Yeah. His podcast, Nacion Combi. Uh, it's a podcast about mostly Peruvian politics, also other Peruvian goings on. It's in Spanish, so learn Spanish or practice your Spanish. Um well, listen to it. Uh, he also obviously does logos. He does comic books. If you want to reach him, uh, just email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. He's also on Twitter, at mildemonios. And, and you can also ask him about Walter Mitty. He has, he has a lot of opinions about it. And good, because it's a fucking great movie. Uh, no, my it's not really – it's kind of a half plug. Uh, I told Julio – I watched The Dirt, the new Netflix original, the biopic on Motley Crue. You sent me a text. Yeah, and I said, hey, watch this movie so we can talk about it, because I didn't just want to kind of go on about it. Now, I am assuming I am safe in s- assuming <laughs> – I'm assuming I'm safe in assuming that you are not as big of a Motley Crue fan as I am. Uh, yeah, I couldn't pick them out of a lineup, <laughs> Mus- out of a musical lineup. You know what I mean? Like, okay, the, so, I, was, cause, I mean, all the songs were Motley Crue songs in the movie, right? 
Yes. 99%. Meaning that you are not actually familiar with as much of the real life happenings. So a lot of that movie is probably news to you. Right. I know uh, Tommy Lee and Pamela. Did you know Nikki Six died? No. Okay. Um, So I guess we'll start off with what did you think about it? Um, That seems unfair. Okay. Because your text made me think that at the very least you were kind of excited about it. Okay, and it's not that I wasn't, but I went in expecting to watch kind of, you know, what you called, what you've called in previous episodes, like disposable TV. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is going to be a disposable movie. I'm going to be playing on my phone while this shit happens. Also, I'd listened to our our buddies from Netflix and Swill did a spotlight review on it. Okay. And so I already kind of knew the format. They were talking about the unreliable narrators and, uh, you know. Breaking the fourth wall. Breaking the fourth yeah. wall and how they the and how movie it was directed by Jeff Tremaine of Jackass fame. Yeah, and they 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 talked at length about the opening with Tommy Lee going down on that girl and the squirting. Oh yeah. And they're like, How do you top that? You know, you just basically you peaked within the first five minutes of your movie. <laughs> so I, I had like a, a pretty good idea of what I was getting into and I wasn't expecting much. And that's pretty much what it delivered yeah. to me. I did get the feeling that if you were a bigger fan of the band, a bigger fan than me, which is not hard. You mm-hmm. know, you probably get a lot more out of it. I, if it was a, the exact same movie about Aerosmith, I would have been all in. <laughs> My sister said the guy who played Mick Mars, the older one in the band, is like of note, like he's from Game of Thrones or something. No, she's thinking of someone else. There's no way that that's him. Okay. Oh no, actually, maybe that is him. Yeah, he's one like one of the bad guys. Okay. Start talking. I'm going to look this up because there's no way – I can't believe that I missed that. Yeah, she seemed really excited when he came on the screen. Anyway, uh, for Jeff Tremaine, I mean, I, I don't know what we could really expect. So as from a – Have you seen all the all the Jackass movies? Fuck yeah, dude. I, I grew up on Jackass. That shit came out at a very important time in my adolescence. <laughs> so I'm very loyal to it. Anyway. Uh, uh, your sister was right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is – Ewan Rion, who played Ramsey Bolton in the show, one of the like most terrible villains, terrible and like he was a terrible person. So, yeah, um, and he was my favorite actor. I, I I thought that he was the best out of like the band, like yeah. as far as acting wise. The him, the guy who played Nikki Six, and the guy who played Vince Neil were all either English or Australian, and I thought that was funny. Uh, do you know who the guy who played Tommy Lee was? He goes by a shoot name in the movie, Colson Baker, but he's a rapper named Machine Gun Kelly. Have you ever heard that name before? Yes, but I couldn't put a face to it. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, He was unequivocally the highlight of the movie. Uh, That being said... Him or or what the movie gave him to do? Because I felt like the movie kind of liked him better than everybody else. What he did with the character and, like, he nailed Tommy Lee, especially young Tommy Lee. And especially being that he's not an actor. That's why I was just like, okay, that was awesome. Um, it, it's fine. I think it's like at forty percent on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. It's one of those movies. I was so it got me so fucking hyped in the first half, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is fucking great!" And then the second half, it's just like all these famous stories about them just shoehorned into the movie. Like the guy who plays Ozzy snorting the ants and mm-hmm. shit. That's a real story. Um, that they just seemed intent on because it has nothing to do with like the flow of the movie. Like the it starts and the first half is. Growing up, meeting each other, starting this band. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And then it just falls off the rails. Then it's just like, okay, now it's just a collection of crazy anecdotes. Yeah. Until we get to the breakup of the band 
and then the reunion <laughs> of the band. Yeah, and, and it's not funny, but it is like the movie. It's like, yeah, Vince Neil killed a guy and then his daughter died. But, you know, it, and, and then they just got back together. And then they cut from like 80 or early 90s crew to like fucking their 2005 reunion tour. And it's just like, okay. It it definitely it started off well and had some good intention behind it. I was just kind of tickled pink that a Motley Crue biopic came out, and um, most of what I know about them is I remember watching their behind the music like fucking ten times when I was younger, and also just reading about it online. But it definitely made me made me want to read the book about it. I've just heard that like some of the stuff in there is just beyond X rated, but too it, graphic for Netflix. Yeah, exactly. I guess the whole reason I was encouraging us to discuss it was just this kind of fad we're moving towards these netflix netflix originals and you know if that's the direction it's going where we get something like that i think that's pretty cool it i think it's going to kind of change the game in terms of um i think people are going to view it differently it's, oh it's just a netflix original it doesn't really matter like yeah no they've certainly i mean fuck Roma was a Best Picture nominee. It walked away with a handful of awards, mm -hmm. you know, the past award season. It was just, I think they're a big player. Anybody who doesn't see that at this point is just. But yeah, I was just, I was curious what you had thought about going into it, especially because I was assuming that you weren't a big Motley Crue person. Uh, I think if you are, you're definitely going to get more out of it. And um, there were a couple cameos in there I enjoyed, but there's nothing more upsetting than a movie that starts good and then falls apart yeah i i i definitely because i watched it in two sittings i watched the first half oh i know <laughs> and then then i remember talking to eddie about it like saying hey, i'm watching this motley crew movie and he said oh man that looked terrible it's like you know it's not great but it's it's got a lot of energy yeah. I'm, I'm having a good time watching it and then i watched the second half i'm like what happened <laughs> Uh, was I not paying attention? <laughs> yeah, I was like, how tired was I last night when I watched the first half? And uh, I really, the guys from Netflix and Swill didn't care at all for the the storytelling, mm -hmm. you know. And I, I think that their movies have done it better, but I think they were trying. The yeah. whole, especially at the beginning, it's fun to see basically each member of the band have their own version of how things happen, and they bring you. I really like the you know Ion Rion. What's the name? Mars, Mike Mick Mars. Mars. Yeah, Mick Mars. The fact that you meet him and then instantly you find out that he has that that problem with his spine. Mm -hmm. That suddenly adds so much to the character. Every yeah. time I saw him, I was like, that's really cool. And I was pretty let down that basically it just almost gets resolved off camera. Yeah. <laughs> they go pick him up from the hospital. He gets up from the from a wheelchair and you never would have known that he was sick. <laughs> he just dies off screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it basically the first half does this job of creating this interesting style of storytelling and movie and then it's just like all right second half now we got to figure out how to get all these famous stories put to film and what have you it's i enjoyed it i would recommend it to fans of motley crew and also just anybody because it's it's again it's like an hour and 40 minutes it's one yeah, of those movies that's too short to be offensive and, and, and you don't have to it's one of those movies also you can just throw in the background yes because you don't it does have not to. require meticulous attention it's no Birdman. yeah and i mean worst case scenario you don't like it but you still get to listen to motley crew songs for an hour and a half so it's fucking great yeah i mean i know i just sounded dismissive when i said that i couldn't pick them out but that's really big I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't like the music. The yeah. music was fine. I, yeah. It sounded like a band that I could have liked if I got into it. Yeah, dude. I was like, I think I like stood up and started headbanging when they played Livewire. I was just like, <laughs> fuck yes. <laughs> that song goes hard all day, all night. All right. Uh, yeah, I believe that was it for myself. I don't 
I had been so fucking busy recently. So um, I also have a half plug, but that in the sense that I haven't finished the season. But mm-hmm. there's this show on Netflix. Netflix getting all the pl- this show is sponsored by Netflix. <laughs> um, uh, it's called You Why Oh You, and uh, it's ten episodes. I've watched five of them, so I'm literally halfway through the season, and it's. You know, it's bingeable. Honestly, if I'd had like one more day off, I probably would have blasted through the second half of the of the season. Uh, it sets up its premise pretty quickly. This dude works at the bookstores, pretty tech savvy, pretty like good at scheming, becomes obsessed with a girl, mm-hmm. and you through the the entire first episode, you realize that he's he's a creep, and but it's all told from his point of view, and you oh. get this running voiceover that's pretty fascinating because obviously his voiceover paints him as the good guy even as he's doing really reprehensible stuff uh and and you know the girl only sees the good parts of him so she's also kind of like slowly charmed by him it's it and it's a lot of fun it's just i don't know you know i'll have to wait until the end of the season to see what exactly the show is saying Mm -hmm. um about relationships and perception in this day and age there's a lot about social media that comes into play during the story uh but but more than anything it's just fun because you see this guy manipulating his way into this girl's life and the friends that kind of distrust him and the friends that embrace him and then all this other stuff going on it's it's i was just glued to the screen you know just it's like more give me more and then ends with a cliffhanger and you're like okay well what happens next um so at least i can vouch for the first five episodes <laughs> come back on the next recording be like i redact what i had said previously after episode five it goes to shit (laughs) all right so that was birdman that was a good episode that was a lot of fun um next will be our bono episodes also green book in the pipeline we got a lot going on and uh the podcast for the cure live stream for the cure cure. i think fuck cancer yes hashtag fuck cancer and we will. I think that we should reveal what movie we're gonna do at the end of the the London episode, at the end of the second bonus episode. It works just, for me. Yeah, drop it on them. For the interim, though, that's gonna do it for us on the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. They're living under a rock, you know, they're just like, no, the movie theaters is the only way, the only... Did you see fucking Spielberg? Now we're going, like, way off into, like, a digression, but Steven Spielberg just basically trying to... the the Tabitha speech about... Yeah, 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 basically, you know, the Oscars are about film, and while I'm in this town, Netflix shall not pass. Jesus. It's ridiculous. I just... And also heartbreaking, because Spielberg, you know master innovator from decades ago and now suddenly he's an old man that just can't well it's just that you gotta change the times like the um the martyr that was the dark night of the next year <laughs> we had to expand the best picture it's just it's the way it's going quick the, ranking of the of the jackass movies the movies yeah yeah the movies uh shit the first one's probably my favorite just because I'll never be able to erase that sentimental attachment of going to the movie theater and like seeing it and like 
hearing them say fuck for the first time because it's always censored on the TV show and whatnot. Uh, by the end of it, they were just getting fucking disgusting. The best thing they ever did in the in movie, 3D, in the movie franchise, was not even in one of the movies, but it's like from a behind the scenes of part two when they were in India. They got the guy who had the world's longest fingernails that were like fucking six feet long and they didn't know what to do with them. And they're just talking about like they had no idea. And then they just cut to the shot of him pouring beer down him and Steve-O's at the bottom of it. But the best part of all of it is beforehand they got the guy. They had him like rehearse it. And the gentleman with the fingernails just goes, it's a millet time. And then starts pouring the beer down his fingernails. Oh, God. I, we used to say that all the time in college. That was like uh, me and my friends in joke. 